Welcome to Someone Else's Movie, the podcast where an actor, writer, director, or nebulous industry figure gives a little love to a movie they didn't make. I'm Norm Wilner, senior film writer for Now Magazine, and I'm mostly over my cold. My guest this week is Ian McIntyre, a writer and story editor whose credits include Degrassi, Next Class, and recent seasons of the Inspector Gadget and George of the Jungle animated series. He also writes for the Beaverton Online, which my Canadian listeners may feel is especially relevant of late. Ian picked Ghostbusters. Ivan Reitman's 1984 effects comedy starring Bill Murray, Dan Aykroyd, and Harold Ramis as parapsychologists who get kicked out of Columbia, reinvent themselves as supernatural exterminators, and wind up saving the world from extra-dimensional destruction. As you do. A high-concept comedy with a perfect cast and a maddeningly catchy theme song, it became the year's biggest hit, earning nearly $230 million at the domestic box office and landing Oscar nominations for Best Visual Effects and Best Original Song. And it's a total coincidence that we're following up last week's Aliens episode with another Sigourney Weaver 80s classic, but what can I say? Sometimes everything just lines up. This is someone else's movie. I've loved this movie ever since I was a kid, but I just got to be a weirdly big fan of it in the last handful of years. Mm -hmm. But even still, the guys who are freaking out about it nowadays, about the new one, I can't grasp that. Yeah, it's good that we can get this out of the way up top. Yes. Uh, But... It's insane. Like, it just—it really is insane. People are, as with Gamergate, people are going out of their way to insist that it's not about the thing that it's about. Yeah, exactly. It's so transparently about the thing that it's about. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. It's just, and don't get me wrong. I understand that people out there don't like reboots. I've just never. I didn't see online petitions about uh, Total Recall last year mm. or RoboCop yeah. or any other number of beloved 80s movies that are being remade. Yeah, and in those cases, projects that actually should have maybe been prevented. Yes, someone should have stopped yeah. them. But, yeah, I don't know. Just watching this is just... Ugh. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There's no... It, it's Well, it's the slipperiness, right? It's the fact that they can't... I, I'm trying to figure out just how many of the people who are most volubly opposed to a female-led remake of Ghostbusters understand that it's... Someone uh, on Twitter pointed it out beautifully a couple of weeks ago. They said that basically they're, they're arguing that this movie is no longer for me because it doesn't represent me because I don't see dudes. Yes. Because I cannot see myself. I can't imagine myself. Mm-hmm. Which is so bizarre right because you know if you go to if you if you go to the the ebert theory of movies as an empathy machine that you're supposed to be able to imagine what it would be like to be a woman fighting ghosts as easily as a guy fighting ghosts and it's not like the first film uses i mean they're wonderful actors but those characters are kind of fuck-ups and that's the point of ghostbusters which is that these are dangerously unqualified people running around new york with nuclear technology fighting spirits (laughs) And then I have no problem with women doing the same thing because it makes it different and interesting-er. Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, Ghostbusters at its heart uh, was an underdog story when they made it back in the day. You know, it's sort of that 80s slobs versus snobs kind of idea. Yeah, it's kind of the last gasp of it, really. Uh, really? Well, yeah, yeah. It's like the, the last tail end of like meatball, Meatballs, Caddyshack, that kind of yeah. idea, and Animal House. But um, yeah, it's it's... I don't know. Nowadays, if you want to have that same kind of story of people not taking these Ghostbusters seriously, I think it makes sense to make them women. Mm -hmm. Uh, The incredulity that they are going to have at not being taken seriously. Although I definitely think 
the comedic engine of this movie is going to be different. Yeah. Because, I mean, Paul Feig just does a different sense of humor. Everyone in it does very different sense of humor. The one interesting thing about the original movie is as much as they are all fuck-ups, they are very rarely seen... They're very rarely comedically low status Mm. in it. They're always the smartest guys in the room. um, And it's very rarely that the rug gets pulled out from under them. Like, with the exception of Bill Murray getting slime on them or something like that. And I definitely get the impression from the trailers that this new movie... Like, Kristen Wiig is going to play low status a lot. And that'll be, like, the comedic thing. Which is fine, because that's just her comedic hit a lot of the time. Yeah, and it's her her wheelhouse. It's her wheelhouse, yeah, exactly. Um, If anything, I get the impression that Kate McKinnon is going to be the closest to what Bill Murray was doing in that first movie. Which is, like, at every moment, Bill Murray is kind of, like, making... Or rather, his character, Venkman, is, like, making jokes for himself. Yeah. Kind of kind of at the expense of everyone around him and kind of just to amuse himself and he doesn't really care if anyone notices. Yeah, it's a really weird trait that I don't I don't remember noticing the first time around. Like when I was a kid, I, I saw Ghostbusters in nineteen eighty four, I think on its opening day. Holy smokes. I was I'm old. Uh, I, but I'm I jealous. Been, I would have been fifteen. Uh, it was the old York Theater on mm-hmm. uh, Young and Eglinton in this giant room. And it was 70 millimeter. It was like that back in the day when the event movie was whatever the studios were releasing that week. Oh, that sounds so good. It was a lot of fun. And it's going to read Dexter. Oh, it's not you. It's him. He knows better. Hmm. He doesn't know anything. Uh, But it played. It played beautifully. And I don't think there was time to appreciate all of the bits, all of the elements, all of the really idiosyncratic construction. Because for a major motion picture studio event, which is definitely how it was pitched at the time, Mm -hmm. it's insanely, um, like, idiosyncratic doesn't even begin to cover it. It's a movie that should not have worked even close to as well that it worked. Like, have you heard about how fast they made it? Yeah. They pitched it, like, I think May of 1983. No, he pitched it in fall of 19... No, pitched in May of 1983, they started shooting in fall of 1983 to deliver it summer of 1984. Yeah, June, I think it was the 8th. The yeah. same day Gremlins opened, which was even weirder. Oh, really? Yeah. What Some a great weekend. Yeah, I saw Gremlins in the afternoon and Ghostbusters in the evening. Oh, god damn. <laughs> that sounds amazing. Well, they were right across the road from each other, practically. Ah, you're killing me. <laughs> this was the glory days of Toronto when there were giant theaters in every in every neighborhood. Oh, my but, god. Yeah, no, it was a good day. Yeah, no, that sounds amazing. But yeah, like... Just how much of that movie is like the script was half finished and the the bits were getting improvised on the fly and like even the whole cross the streams thing was something that Ramus threw in halfway through shooting because they were like, oh shit, we need a way to end this movie. Um, it's yeah. not the tightest constructed plot ever made. No, I mean, it kind of has one. It, uh, yeah, it has as much of one as it needs. Yeah, it really doesn't care. I mean, no. ultimately, it's it's alternately a really creepy pickup artist comedy because uh, the scenes with and I've mentioned this on the podcast once or twice before because it's one of those amazing examples of watching it thirty years later and realizing that Bill Murray's character, like Peter Venkman, is essentially he's not just hitting on oh, yeah. his character; he's aggressively pushing himself up against her and cornering her and flirting with her, and it still works as sweet because Murray is incapable of playing hostility. Yes, and maybe it is just that as someone who's loved this movie since I was a kid, it's always in the back of my mind that if she was to outright say no, that he would leave. Yeah. Maybe that's just me justifying it. No, I think it's what passed for flirting in the late 70s, early 80s. That's just how people internalize that attitude. 
Yeah. The sexual revolution was still chugging along, and people were, like, literally throwing themselves at each other. They were, they were. Although, I mean, fortunately, Sigourney Weaver does play... She presents a pretty... I hesitate to use the word strong female character, but, like, she has had a lot of confidence to her. Sure. More so than a lot of, like, movie ingenues back in the 80s. Sure. Yeah, I mean, she is... I mean, she's already made Alien and Eyewitness and, and mm-hmm. the, the big things that define her as a, as a serious sort of kind of competitive street performer. And she's taller than Murray, which is right yes. away, like, makes it funny to just put them together. And, mm-hmm. and she towers over Rick Moranis, which plays beautifully later oh on. Oh, my God, yes. But, uh, yeah, no, Dana Barrett is not a pushover. She, yeah. She just refuses to be part of whatever game is being played until mm-hmm. she's possessed and given no choice and then Sigourney Weaver gets to really have fun with it which apparently like was her audition scene of her just barking like a dog on a table (laughs) and not even that they asked her to do it that she was like do you want me to do this part and they were like go nuts and she did (laughs) and she got the part I can see that yeah it is but yeah I mean just in terms of which actors are paired up and how these things work and you know they wanted John Candy in originally you've seen the storyboards I'm sure oh yeah they're on that laser disc you're holding oh that's um that uh, I think it was was it Ray who was originally going to be Candy's character because they no they wanted Candy to play Lewis Tully oh that's right and he apparently read the script and was like I just don't get it maybe I'll play him as like weird and German and he'll own big dogs <laughs> and Ivan Reitman was like um no <laughs> and eventually John Candy was like thanks but no thanks guys thanks for thinking of me and they sent it to Rick Moranis who like jumped on it sure and God, of course he would made that part incredible yeah it's um I. Yeah, John Candy doing a Teutonic accent thing. I don't... Yeah. yeah. It's funny that that is always the go-to. Like, Dan Aykroyd wanted to play... Um, I can never remember the character's name, but the operative he plays in Gross Point Blank he was going to do as an East German spy. Who Really? Yeah. And they I just said, yeah, maybe don't that. do it, Dan. Maybe just play yourself. Yeah. I, I, I see with those guys there is always a an urge to do too much. Mm. Uh, just to kind of amuse themselves, especially with Dan Aykroyd, who just loves detail. Yeah. Well, almost the, to a fault. The, well, the story about the script, too, is that they got Ramis to bring in all the humanity because Aykroyd's thing was this arcane pitch set in the future where... I love it. My my secret dream is to meet <laughs> Dan Aykroyd someday and ask him if a copy of that treatment still exists. It must be out there. He would never give it away. I He'd hope to God. Anything. Uh, for, for those of you listening at home, even though you're probably not at home right now, um, uh, the the legend of this movie is that Dan Aykroyd originally wrote the concept uh, in the early 80s as a pitch for him and Belushi mm-hmm. and it was called originally it was going to be Ghost Smashers but then they wisely changed it to Ghostbusters um, but it was going to be like you just said set in the future uh, they hop dimension to dimension uh, the Stay Puft Marshmallow Man was like page 10 <laughs> and like the first of a dozen large scale behemoths that they were going to take on yeah, it was basically structured like a video game with boss battles even though that hadn't happened yet exactly kind of amazing he That's... was predicting those too in the early 80s Aykroyd's ahead of the curve man you do enough cocaine you can see the future <sighs> well uh, from the sounds of it um, but yeah like uh, th- yeah there was going to be a lot of pan-dimensional stuff there was going to be different um, franchises of Ghostbusters uh, and stuff like that and uh the studio and Ivan Reitman looked at it and they were like, this is cool. This would cost $500 million to shoot in 1984 dollars. Right. Uh, so like you just said, he, he went to Ramus and he was like, maybe rewrite this with Dan. Uh, maybe make it a going into business story set in the future or set in the present day. Right. And uh, they rewrote it in like three weeks. And uh, it's exactly what he said. Oh, uh, the other best thing is that this, like I said, it was a treatment that Dan Aykroyd wrote. 
A movie treatment is like, what, 12 pages, 15 pages? Yeah, I assume so. This was like 80-something pages. <laughs> so, so it's a novel. It's a novel. It's it's like a short novella of just insanity <laughs> that Dan Aykroyd wrote, like, just straight from his head because he is obsessed with the parapsychological and the technology around it. Uh, his family are mediums. Yeah, I've, I've heard all the stories and I... I still can't fully believe that he's integrated into society. Have you, oh my god, a couple of years ago, a friend of mine sent me the video for his um, vodka. Oh yeah. Uh, yeah, his Crystal Skull had vodka, which is good vodka, I like it a whole lot. Uh, the one time I had it. <laughs> um, but uh, I literally just, in my head, got this panic moment of what if Dan Aykroyd hears me making fun of him, but <laughs> let's put that away. That would be great. I would be honored. <laughs> yes. Honestly. That would be a hell of a get. I did meet him once, and I was speechless. It's one of those, one of the handful of humans I've ever encountered where I was just like, ah. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I would lose my mind to meet that did guy. Did not know where to start. He was, <sighs> it was here. He was in, I want to, I'm thinking it was either the Rivoli or the Horseshoe. Oh, uh, that's so he cool. Was, he was here to promote something and he was going to play music and it was just one of those 90s, early 90s moments where the opportunities lined up and I was there. I'm like, Rob Salem brought me along as his, I don't know, <sighs> factotum or something. And I was just like, I don't even know where to start. I yeah. don't know where to start. I said, hi, I love your work. I babbled a bit. It's so... Because, I mean, I'm a big nerd for Saturday Night Live, even to this day, and it, I find it such a shame. And I guess it just makes sense because it's been 40 years, but how much people forget that he was the quintessential Saturday Night Live yeah, player. he was the first utility player. Absolutely. There was nobody else who could do everything. Everything. Like, just shockingly talented and versatile. Uh, yeah. But, uh, oh, the thing I was going to say is uh, his Crystal Skull Vodka video, a friend of mine showed it to me, and he said, for the first five minutes... You think Dan Aykroyd has made a hilarious viral video? Okay. Because it's him talking about the healing power of crystals and Mayan crystal skulls and how transdimensional beings uh, have influenced Mayan culture and how uh, filtering the vodka through crystals will allow you to get healing energies and stuff like that. You think it's a joke. You want it to be. And five minutes in of this 10 minute video, you realize he's dead serious about all of it. Uh, it's what it's like. He had that show in the eighties too, Side Factor. Yeah, which yeah. he took apparently quite seriously. I no doubt. Yeah, uh, and I love like I mean I have been a lifelong fan of that kind of stuff. Honestly, from this, from this movie, uh, I not that I would say I believe in all of it, but I'm fascinated by it. Sure. As a kid, I knew way too much about monsters and ghosts and UFOs and aliens and. To this day, I am obsessed with the Loch Ness Monster more than a grown man should be. <laughs> uh, my fiancé has very graciously agreed that if we end up taking our, hol- our uh, honeymoon to Europe, that we will make a trip uh, up to there to so that I can see that for once in my life. A pilgrimage. Kind of? That's sort of great. Oh, she's, she's the best. She gets you. She clearly gets you. She really does. Yeah. Um, um, yeah. So, yeah, no, this and this is all by way of me coming back around and saying, yeah, absolutely. When I saw Ghostbusters the first time and then the second and the third and the fourth times, you, I could completely appreciate the mythology of it. It makes sense. It makes a demented sense. Mm-hmm. But at no point does it give you the time to pick apart Keymasters and Gatekeepers. And, and oh, no. The, and the actors are all, not just Aykroyd, but Moranis especially, delivers that stuff with such authority. Yes. Uh, that just, you know, many, uh, what is it? Many sloths and verse were consumed in the mouth of the slur that day, I can tell you. <laughs> like, and that to him is a joke. Yeah. It's an incredible moment that just makes 
absolute perfect sense for the character. And it's that thing, that improv point of always telling the truth, like mm-hmm. always be convicted and mm-hmm. committed to whatever it is you're doing. There is so much going on in this. There are terror dogs that come out of statues and ancient building planners that create um, oh my God. pyramids. But at no point, and I watched it again a little while ago and just thought, yeah, this holds up. This actually does flow. Mm-hmm. Where do these stairs go? They go up. It doesn't <laughs> like it doesn't matter what else is happening yep. galactically or, or pandimensionally, as long as we are rooting have a rooting interest in what's going on. And it just it's such a simple idea to carry like a juggernaut to carry the audience through it. And you can see, like you said with Ramus adding the humanity, that they they managed to pick all of the perfect moments for Ackroyd to just spew techno babble. Yeah in a way that deepens the world and makes you feel like I'm seeing a corner of this insane metaphysical world that is out there that Dan Aykroyd's character has obsessively cataloged and knows everything about. Right. Uh, like, there's just, there's got to be so much out there. Symmetrical book stacking. Symmetrical, oh my God. It's all, <laughs> and everything is, everything is, and for, and for Ray, everything is categorical. Everything mm-hmm. can be cataloged. Which is amazing, because then you get Venkman saying, yeah, no human being would stack books like this, which <laughs> punctures it and lets us laugh and then sets up the actual unreality of it. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, you just have, yeah, you have Ray, the obsessive believer who wants to catalog all of it and is never not impressed and amazed. Right. He's awed by everything that he sees. You have Venkman, who just pulls the air out of everything perfectly. And then you have Egon, who just has such perfect clinical detachment about everything. But in the second movie, they kind of start to border on, like, on humanity. Yeah. Like, just this really unfeeling... I don't, I don't want to say cruelty, but... Well, no. I mean, it's what a sociopath would be. Yeah. I think, if you extended it a little further. Mm-hmm. Um, because, yeah, he can't feel. He has to be He has to be Spock. He has to be yes. the Spock. But even Spock would have moments of humanity that he would see as annoying but they were still necessary yeah and with yeah with egon towards the the second film it's really just yeah he kind of has to be super deadpan to to Mm. balance everything else but yeah i don't i don't know that well we'll get into the sequel because you can't not but it's one of those things where so much of it feels right that it's frustrating that it doesn't yeah you, you can see where they started to cut corners on the making of it and see how that impacted the final thing but yeah and then there's of course winston who what a shame to read about how that role rolled out for Ernie Hudson. Yeah. Just because, like, I mean, originally, I've always heard that originally they pitched it to Eddie Murphy. Well, uh, which, which would make sense at the time. Right? At the time, he yeah. Was coming up, he wasn't a total megawatt star yet, but he was the asset that you wanted in your film if you were making something in the 80s. I think it's like 48 Hours had just come out. Right. And it was clear, like, he'd done th- two years on SNL as this brilliant megawatt star that everyone could tell was the most talented person going. And originally, Winston comes in before... He comes in on the first act before they go to the hotel. And the, the first mission they go on is the four of them together. And there's storyboards for all of it. Okay. Um, and then he passed He passed on it, which I also read somewhere a quote of him saying, like, it's the only role he regrets turning down. I can see that. But at the time, he was like, I'm, I'm about to be in Beverly Hills Cop. Like, I don't need to play fourth banana in a movie. Um, but then they pitched it to Ernie Hudson, who was so excited to play this role, and then when he finally gets to set, he sees that they've winnowed it down to this guy who shows up, I think, partway into the second act, and is really just there as an exposition machine. 
And there was also all this stuff about how Winston Zeddemore was like a PhD and how he was a, a former military specialist. Okay. Like he was supposed to be like a demolitions guy. Oh, that makes sense. Yeah. And the joke was going to be that while all of them were these sort of various levels of brainiacs and PhDs and scientists that he was just super capable. Right. Like he was the guy who should be holding a nuclear accelerator, firing it right. in the middle of a city. So he's the one with real world experience. and you know. Exactly. And that he was the one that constantly had to rein them in. Which would be great for Murphy. Which would have been great. Yeah, or for or for Ernie Hudson, who would have also been really good at that. He would have been great, but uh, yeah, apparently to his much to his chagrin, they they took the part down a whole lot. He yeah. was very disappointed by now it. Now he's just a blue collar guy who applies for the job and gets it. Exactly. Yeah. Although and, it does give you that beautiful, beautiful scene in the car with Ray, which is yeah. one of my favorite scenes in the entire movie, and and maybe one of the best things I think Ackroyd's ever done because it it's that just that little scene where they bullshit and then they're not bullshitting anymore about God yeah. and it just gives you this sort of gathering darkness that gets you into the third act but also has that amazing exchange like do you believe in God it's like I've never met him <laughs> that's how you handle it yeah like even Joss Whedon never came up with an elegant way of sidestepping the absence of God in a supernatural universe I know and he's had chances but uh, <laughs> yeah it just says I think that's kind of my philosophy really mm-hmm. um, is that that is possible. That you can reduce this huge conflict of the dead rising from the grave and New Testament stuff to this tiny little exchange of two people in a car quietly freaking themselves out <laughs> uh, with the depth and the and the gravity of what's happening around them. And and that like those are the moments that make it the Harold Ramis script instead of the yes. Ackroyd script. That so clearly, um, you know, that those speak to Ramis's interests throughout the rest of his life, throughout the yeah. rest of his writing career. But he isn't in it because. He knows Egon couldn't carry that conversation. He'd shut it down. He'd be too absolutist about it. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. Yeah, also, such points to Harold Ramis for setting everyone else up to succeed so much Mm -hmm. in this movie. Just realizing, because originally he wasn't even sure he was going to be in it. And just as they started to flesh this role out, everyone was like, you seem to have this voice down really well. Do you want to just play it? She was like, all right. They, they, the studio, uh, Reitman really had to sell the studio on having him in it because of, you know, Murray, Aykroyd, and then Harold Ramis. Right. He was like, the least known. Like, stripes hadn't happened. Yeah. But, yeah. yeah, I can see that being one of those weird stumbling blocks where it's like, well, he was in this other movie with Bill Murray, and people might remember that, but we really want to push the Saturday Night Live connection, and this guy was on the other show. Like, there's a million... And, and as with every movie, there are a million points at which something could go terribly wrong, mm-hmm. uh, and we wouldn't get what we get but Ghostbusters is one of those things where like even mismatched effects shots work and yes. feed, and feed into this sort of ragged quality like, oh it has so much momentum that yeah you're right they're yeah. just charming at this point as opposed to looking at old movies and being like oh that looks bad yeah there's a close up of a cake exploding there's no reason for it but it's it's <laughs> always struck me even the first time I saw it like it's twice as grainy as everything else because of the opticals and there's just, just oh, this yeah. glorious destruction in the hotel in that ballroom sequence and it it accomplishes nothing. They just blow up a bunch of food. Yes. But it's amateurish in exactly the right way because mm-hmm. it's early enough in the in their careers as professional supernatural exterminators that they don't know what they're doing. Yes. And so we are encouraged. Yeah, it, I mean, it is. It's slobs against snobs. It's this incredible underdog story. The, the scene with the Bill Murray just making fun of that woman's fox rap. It's all there. Like, it all feeds into <laughs> itself constantly. And it just feels like this creative soup mm-hmm. that keeps producing stuff. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's exciting in a way that, like, how many other 
billion dollar franchises were launched by something that just felt this distinctive. I know, just uh, just so vital and so assured and confident and just uh, I would say it's hands down I think it's Bill Murray's best performance. It's his most there's Groundhog Day and Rushmore, but they're very different. Okay, yeah, they're no, so different. Yeah, I maybe I shouldn't know. discount Groundhog Day. And I, I'm not as big an aficionado of Rushmore to really. <laughs> I know, I know, it's great. I, I don't question that. It's just a movie I've only ever seen, I think, twice. Okay. Um, but yeah, this movie, I just he's so assured. Every step that he makes is just so confident, and every joke that he makes is a joke that only he could make, and. Yeah, I've just never seen him quite pull that off. Uh, because Groundhog Day, I mean, he arguably acts a lot more. He gets a much more distinct arc in it. Right. But this is... That is another thing that I kind of love about this movie, is there's not really an arc. No. Yeah. Nothing not really changes by the end of it. Yeah. None of the characters are affected. None of them have really grown. There's, there's a tiny moment at the end where... Uh, Egon sets up the plan of like, okay, if we do this thing where we cross the streams, the thing I said will kill us. It might save the world, but it'll probably kill us. And you just see it reads on all their faces as a joke moment. And then Bill Murray just makes the decision of like, I love this plan. I'm excited to be a part of it. Yeah. And you see the only moment in the movie where he does something noble, which is, I am going to use this weird charisma that I have to talk all of my buddies into committing suicide (laughs) to save the world. And, oh, and there's a beautiful moment a second later, and maybe I've just read too much into this, where... Oh, no, it's when they think Dana's dead. I know. I no, 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 exactly no. It's, it's before that. Okay. It's Which, by the way, that is also a great moment. But when they're about to turn on their proton packs to shoot, to cross the streams, and he says, see on the other side, Ray. And uh, Ray looks at him and says, nice working with you, Dr. Bankman. And it's the only time someone calls him doctor in the movie that's not meant to be a burn. Right. That's not meant to undermine him. Because every time it's like, Dr. Venkman, like, no one really believes he's a doctor. Yeah. And it's the only time one of his friends says it from a place of respect. And I'm like, oh, that is kind of a moment. Yeah. But that's as much of an arc as the movie has. Yeah. It's funny, too. There's there's a line... Oh, there was an episode of Judge John Hodgman, the podcast, where they mentioned... Uh, something about Ghostbusters, and I, it's it's on their website, not there, I'm part of the public record, I was compelled to put on my OCD film critic hat <laughs> and explain that the there is a world of, um, there's a world of history, of backstory, in that early scene where uh, Venkman asks a question and, and Stance responds with you never studied and he says it lovingly <laughs> and it's because this is the thing like Ray and probably Egon have had to work at this they have done this all their lives they have been really really good at the academic stuff mm-hmm. Venkman's a natural yes uh, we see it in the initial sequence where he's torturing the kid with electric shocks oh, because God. The punchline to that joke, and it's buried, and I'm sure it's a Ramus joke, not an Eckroyd joke. Yeah. The punchline to that joke is that his theory is correct, that he is right about. Because when we find out what the experiment is, it's the stimulation of electricity to, uh, to provoke. Uh, yeah, I'm checking the effect of negative reinforcement on EF, ESP yeah. abilities. Right, and it works. Yes, and you know, like, the kid, the li- the joke is, I'll tell you the effect. It's pissing me off, and then it says, perhaps my theory is correct, and it is. Yeah. He's good at what he does. He's just so 
lazy. It's just that yeah, that last card that he picks is so specific. Yeah, that he actually gets it right, and clearly must be uh, yeah, yeah, be he's telepathic made, at this he point. He has made it work. Yes, but the, the joke is that it also pisses you off into having powers is so great, and <laughs> they never followed up. And I was kind of hoping there'd be a return to it in the sequel, but mm-hmm. it's just such a throwaway line. But then, you well, get... oh, by the way, the best thing about that scene is that uh, Venkman doesn't notice. Right. That yeah. he's only focused on trying to pick up this co-ed, and he doesn't notice that he proved his theory correct. Right. Unless that's the whole plan, and the negative reinforcement mm. is also ignoring the guy. Oh, wow. That See? would be... I don't know. It's... I can see that being possible. The scene supports the theory. <laughs> um, I have watched this movie enough times. But that's like that's one of those things where I think about the generosity of Harold Ramis in setting all that stuff up, mm-hmm. and the actor's warmth is what sells Ray's line, yeah. and then pays off in the end with that Dr. Vinkman thing. It is just... These are the things where either they are so baked into the concept by that point that they evolve naturally, or the actors' relationships are informing mm-hmm. the characters' relationships, and you get that stuff coming up naturally. But it still feels yeah. like it's all part of this one thing mm-hmm. that has thought about these characters and loves the characters as much as it loves the mythology and all the elaborate effects stuff, if not more so. Oh, yeah, no, I mean, this is... One of the reasons I love this movie so much is because character isn't the thing I always write first. Okay. It's something that I find I actually have to sit down and really intellectualize and think about. And this movie is such a beautiful character comedy and it just succeeds so much on that start to finish. Uh, that, yeah, it's, it just, it seems effortless, but like you said, it's, it's just because they did all the work ahead of time and it, uh, it shows it's all there and it's what drives the movie. You just, you, you like these guys. Yeah. You want to watch these guys. Yeah. And that's enough to carry a movie start to finish. Yeah. And the, the I guess it's mise-en-scene, but the surrounding, the world that is constructed around them is simultaneously a preposterous, exaggerated, snooty mm-hmm. society film that these guys can Marx Brothers their way through. Oh, yeah. But it's also an amazing snapshot of 1980s New York. Yeah. In a way that, you know, like, I'm just... I can't believe that that they marshaled the shoot the way they did that they actually managed to produce this film in new york city yeah at a point in time where everybody was hostile and miserable and 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 that's a thing that they return to in the sequel that i feel like they then overplay too much yeah that idea of the cartoon like hey i'm walking here everyone shouting at each other constantly in miserable new york yeah and i get why they did it to feed into the whole mood slime thing but at the same time you're yeah you're almost playing against too, you're playing too hard into it. You're it feels to, like a cartoon. Yeah, and there, there's just no... Well, and the, the larger problem with Ghostbusters 2 is that there's no justification for almost anything that happens. It's all so mm. completely random, which they still play with really well, but you know, given the way that you can reduce all of Ghostbusters 2, it's not the girl, it's the building, which is just, again, yeah. we thought about this, mm-hmm. we know exactly what we're doing, and it's kind of a twist in a comedy which... You weren't expecting any twists from. Yeah. Uh, two is just, well, there's this evil painting. And, yeah. Yeah. And I love, I, I do love Peter McNichol. And, sure. Uh, I have a photo. Funnily enough, Eastern European accent. That's right. He and plays the... Janusz Poha. I don't oh, know yes. the character's name. <laughs> uh, and, he, and he's delightful. Oh, um, yeah. He's a wonderful, wonderful character. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, why am I drippings with goo? Is, is a line reading I sadly have used twice in my life. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I think what's wonderful about the original Ghostbusters is a film that was produced, although it was incredibly expensive and, and mm-hmm. complicated, it was a film produced with very little expectation. Yeah. Uh, we're going to put this out there and it'll make money 
mm-hmm. and we'll be fine. And it was just an incredibly cynical production move that turned out to be an amazingly genuine film. Oh, yeah. Um, and the sequel, while I, I kind of love it for what it is, sure, is also not a lot of stuff that it could be or should be. I mean, I have a lot of residual fondness for the sequel because it was came out when I was about nine years old. I was obsessed with the cartoon, right? Uh, which was really my entry point into into all of this. Well, yeah, I was going to ask where that's where it started for you. So you started watching the real Ghostbusters, the real Ghostbusters, uh, and then I remember the first time I ever would have seen the movie would have been on TV, um, and I remember being very scared of it. So had you seen the first one before the sequel? Yes. Okay. But not in a way that I was, like, obsessive about it or really, like, knew everything that happened in it. It was just... It was more just that I liked the cartoon a lot. And so the the sequel movie played really well for me because the sequel movie feels a lot more like the cartoon in a lot of ways. Okay, yeah. Um, they don't smoke anymore. Yeah, it's less uh, concerned with real-world politics and things. They sort of dispense with that in one scene. Yeah, Winston had to shave his mustache so that he would look like the cartoon character. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, they made Ernie Hudson shave. He looks... Not as cool without a mustache. <laughs> That's true. I met that guy at uh, Comic Con a couple of weeks ago, or a couple months ago, and uh, to this day he still has the mustache because oh, yeah. that man should. Yeah, I interviewed him when I think Leviathan was coming back out on Blu-ray. That was the excuse. Sure. Or oh no, he was in this. He was in this anthology film that uh, Sony Pictures was putting out on DVD. But the Leviathan release was the following week, and it's just like I think that's really more important to me. Yeah. He's he's very he's. He's one of those character actors who seems very bemused with his level of (laughs) recognizability, I guess, or just the fact that people light up when they see him because you don't have negative memories of Ernie Hudson. He doesn't play heavies in the same way he plays good guys and and supporting characters. You just like him. It's fun to see him and stuff. Oh, my God. I... Speaking of the like the few people that I could meet in my life that I would really lose my mind over, yeah. he, he was I felt like a child. It Aww, was the best. It is great. It was uh, it was really dumb too because I I have a poster that I had always hoped that I would get signed by all of them. Um, uh, I will never get it signed by Harold Ramis now. Sure. But the only one that I had it signed by for a long time was Bill Murray, That's the one person great. I never expected to sign it. Um, but I got it at the, the Bill Murray day at TIFF. Oh, nice. Uh, because at the end of the day, even though they said people weren't going to do it, everyone just rushed the stage and he signed stuff. Everybody does, yeah. And I was like, I'll take it. I, I don't care. This is the best. Um, but yeah, I got Ernie Hudson to sign it, and I blurted out something dumb about, like, I'm really sorry to ask you to sign a poster that doesn't have you on it. Uh, and I think he got the impression that I was, like, that I was an eBay guy. Like, I was just going to oh, sell it. Yeah. And then, at the end, I was just blabbering on about like it's really nice to meet you like this is this is really great and he was like do you want me to personalize it to you and i was like could you oh he was like oh yeah sure and then at that point he realized that i wasn't just going to sell it i yeah. will hand it down to my children but uh anyway uh, back to the sequel um yeah. oh no, no this is all valid this, okay. is all, this is all great stuff i was just gonna say I, the, the ebay the growing ebay commercialization of signed uh it sucks it's like, it. because not only is it base mm-hmm. and corrupt uh, but it has become so much of an industry now that you cannot have a genuine moment with someone where you say, I really loved you in this thing because they think you're buttering them up to get a right. better signature. So, um, yeah, I mean, I almost never get autographs. I'm not an autograph collector. This, neither am I. This is literally the... is so there, though, for the big stuff. Oh, for sure. This yeah. is the only time I've ever lined up at a convention to get something signed. Right. But it, it's that important to you. Yeah. 
Uh, and for this, like, I'll of course do it. And I mean, I hope someday I can get Ackroyd to sign it if I can, but... Well, if he hears this, he can contact us directly on Twitter. <laughs> Yay! Uh, yeah, he, he used to do signings for his vodka a lot, but oh, yeah. I think that that has fallen by the wayside. Uh, and from the sounds of it, everyone just used to go and get Ghostbusters memorabilia signed. Yeah. Um, but yeah, no, uh, yeah, that sequel, I think it's just, they've talked a lot about it. They, they sat around, they battered around ideas. I think Murray was more involved in the creation of it this time, or at least as much as he cared to be. Right. And as he famously has said, the effects took over and it became a lot more about like, what can we do on screen? And that was what was driving a lot of the story. And, uh, yeah, there's just a lot of really half-baked jokes in it. A lot of jokes that you can tell were improvised that aren't very good. Yeah. Like, there's a joke where they show up at the restaurant wearing all the, like, rain gear so they can go in the sewer. And he's like, let me guess, all you can eat night at the Sizzler. And I'm like, ugh. (laughs) It's like a bad sitcom joke. And here's the thing that, to me, ruins the movie. I can't not notice it now. Um, obviously the first movie has a beautiful score. Elmer Bernstein's score is magnificent. It really is, yeah. It's weird and esoteric, and it's, like, the first half is a lot of theremin. Yeah, it's occasionally inappropriate. Yeah. In a way that it shouldn't be. Like, the, just the, uh, the, the sort of jaunty piano march thing yes. that they do. And then the end is just, like, pure old Hollywood, like, it sounds like King Kong. Yeah. Uh, it's wonderful. I love it. It's a great score. And then the second movie score sounds like some guy on a Casio keyboard. Like, it sounds like it should be the score to, like, Look Who's Talking. Yeah. Uh, which I pick as a late 80s comedy. Maybe that had a good score. I don't know. Nah, probably not. But, but it I, sounds cheap. Yeah, it felt... It's one of those things where you... I wonder... Because I know the production problems with the film were such that, yeah, the, the effects took forever, too. So maybe they just didn't have a lot of time, and it's a really rushed kind of fill at the last... The, That's a the good point, yeah. Production. But so much of it feels like they're racing against a clock because they have a date instead of an idea. Right. Which was what happened with the first film, but somehow it worked out. I think it was just the first film, they were all just young guys who didn't know any better. Yeah. And they were like, we're going to throw this thing together and get it out. Let's have as much fun as we can. Because if anything... We're under such a time crunch now that no one can really say no to us. Right. So let's just make this movie as fun as we can. Let's make ourselves laugh. Whereas the second one, like you said, was all production and we have to get this shot in and we have to get this uh, slate so that they can do this effects shot. And Yeah. We yeah. have this many days with Vigo. You know, and you have to do the makeup on Ackroyd. Who, by the way, apparently the guy who played Vigo, kind of an asshole. Yes, I've heard about this. Just There's a huge maniac. I think it was on the AV Club. There was this long piece about how how kind of miserable he's made other people. Yeah. But, I mean, it's good casting. Yeah, he it's, looks great. It's who you want for a conqueror. He does look like a conqueror, for sure. And again, I I love that concept. The same way that, like, the first movie is all about crazy turn-of-the-century architects building making New York skyscrapers into telemetry antennas that are gateways to another dimension to bring a Mesopotamian god to destroy the world. Like, that's insane world building that I love. Yeah. It's like Anton LaVey and and who's the other one? Crowley? Like, all just every weird arcana thing that Ackroyd had absorbed in some bookstore in St. Mark's Place all barfing out into one moment. Absolutely, but it's cohesive. And even in the second movie, the idea of, like, uh... What it would have been like 12, 1200s despot from Europe who was such a terrible guy, like kind of Vlad the Impaler style. Yeah. Genghis Khan. Genghis Khan, yeah. Everything. 
Yeah, who's been like... What, what is it? My, it is my favorite line in the entire movie. Is like, and just before his head died... <laughs> yes. He said, death is but a door, I shall return. Yeah, death is but a door, time is but a window, I That's shall right. be back. Yeah. Or something like that. And of course, the painting is the window. Woo. Sorry to be a nerd and No, you. God, Ugh. please. That's I love it when people are better researched than I am. Oh, uh, no. Uh, I'm but, sloppy. But yeah, like there's neat stuff in the movie. And the idea of like emotions coalescing into a psychokinetic slime that can do things like that's a cool concept yeah and if you're going to locate it anywhere Dexter oh it's okay you ruin our rhythm no 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 it's totally fine I will say I've listened to a lot of these podcasts if I heard a dog delightfully scratching himself in the background I would not mind nah snoring sighing people there are episodes where it sounds like I'm sighing at someone (laughs) oh no like some really great point comes out and then you hear Take that, Scott Thompson. Yeah, you were trying... Well, Dexter slept on Scott Thompson. That went great. Um, but yeah, if you're going to set a... Um, if you're going to set a, a movie anywhere where that can happen, New sure. York is the best location for it because at that point it was a caricature of itself and it kind of still is. Mm-hmm. Well, now it's too expensive for angry people to live there. They have to go to Brooklyn or, yeah. or Jersey or Queens. Uh, by the way, I, I will be very surprised if in the new Ghostbusters movie they actually set up shop in Manhattan. I wonder. I suspect they won't be able to afford to. Yeah. I I bet that'll be a joke, but I don't know. By the way, just a thing I, because I love ripping on people who make fun of the new Ghostbusters movie. Uh, I saw a lot of people who were mad that they're like, they shot this movie in Boston. Why wasn't it all shot in New York City? And I'm like, you realize the original Ghostbusters wasn't all shot in New York City. Yeah, a lot of it's in Los Angeles. Yeah. Like the, the interior of the firehouse is a firehouse in LA that's also in The Mask. Oh, yeah. The If you remember, when he gets his car fixed, there's like some auto garage that he oh, drops just... his car off and then he goes back to. It's the same place. Cool. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so it's like the exterior of the firehouse is in New York. Oh, yeah. It's down well, in... It's in Tribeca. It's yeah. uh, two blocks from a friend's restaurant. Oh, uh, cool. Yeah, La Conda Verde, Andrew Carmelini, who, who actually has an episode of this podcast It'll, it's coming. Cool. Uh, yeah, yeah. He, but Laconda Verde is in the Greenwich Hotel, which is two blocks away. If you get off, uh, if you get off the uh, the one train mm-hmm. uh, at the Franklin Street exit oh, cool. of that stop, that is the that is the firehouse. Oh, I've been. And this is so embarrassing. I have never recognized it. Oh, I've, really? The, I've walked past it literally dozens of times. It's a little bit off the beaten path. Yeah. It's it's a bit of a side street. But I just never made the connection mm-hmm. that it was. The firehouse. Yeah. And and Kate was, we watched the movie two years ago, I guess, and she'd never watched it as an adult and said, oh, that's the one near Real Conda Verde. That's the firehouse. And I'm like, no, that can't be right. It's Broom Street? No, that's not right. And it, in fact, it is. Yeah, no. I it's bad at locations in the flesh. <laughs> Three dimensions are useless. Yeah, no, it's, uh, it's a neat location. Um, yeah, uh, when my fiance and I were down in New York City a couple of years ago, we were going to a restaurant also down in that neighborhood and we... Uh, elected to stop. I was like, can we please just go out of our way? And the pattern that comes up with a lot of our traveling. Sure. Um, but yeah, no, we, we stopped there. Oh, and we went to the public library too on Fifth Street. Oh, you cannot. Oh, it's amazing. I mean, it's just a magnificent feat of architecture to begin with. But uh, yeah, that was a cool thing to see. Yeah. If you come into the city at Grand Central Station, you kind of almost invariably have to walk past it at some point. Mm-hmm. So it's just this little moment of pure happy. Oh, it's, God. Yeah, the architecture in that city, I mean... Have you heard that the architecture in New York is beautiful? It's almost like it's a character in the movie. Yes. <laughs> uh, well, you've seen They Came Together, right? Yeah. Which was shot in Brooklyn. Was they it really? Afford to shoot in New York. Ah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, no, I got, I, Wayne, I, I talked to Wayne about that, and he said there's this one, there, there's one scene where they had to CG the name of the subway station to make it appear to be in Manhattan. Oh, my God. 
And they only had the money to do it in two shots out of the three that it appears in. <laughs> and so the, the second one, you can actually see the real name. And I caught it. And I said, well, you shot there. And I said, I, I mean, I saw the name of the station. It's like, yeah, we could only animate toys. That's so funny. But yeah, it's just too expensive. Like, the um, what's the line? The, uh, the Richard LeGravenese was telling me in the last five years, there's a, there's a scene where... I mean the 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 house the the sorry the brownstone where the characters live is on West Seventy Third because that's what it says in the song. We found a little place on West Seventy Third, but they had to shoot it in Harlem. That was the only place they could find the bay window that looked right and could actually afford to shoot it. Wow. So yeah, New York has priced itself out of almost everything, yeah. and I think in some on some level, part of that is a reaction to to the. You know, the Made in NYC thing where they've actually got studios now mm -hmm. in Brooklyn and, and Queens that can right. accommodate shooting and they'd rather people shoot on sets. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Well, I mean, apparently this movie, Ghostbusters, famously made the traffic miserable. Oh, yeah, yeah. For like, months. Shooting Downtown and on Central Park West. Yeah, shooting the scene in Central Park West outside Dana's building, which is there, and by the way, is much shorter in real life. Yeah. Um, there was that great story about Asimov uh, that they were shooting the whole crowd sequence where they're going to go in the building and everyone's cheering Ghostbusters. Right. And they famously just snarled traffic across all of Manhattan. Would not be surprised. Uh, for this. Everyone was miserable. And apparently Isaac Asimov lived in the neighborhood at the time and came along to the shooting and someone told Aykroyd that he was there. And Aykroyd lost his mind, of course. <laughs> and he was like, Mr. Asimov, I'm a huge fan of yours. I, you know, uh, really, really big fan. And he was like, do you know who's making this thing? <laughs> and he was like, yeah, yeah, that's the movie that we're shooting. And Asimov was just like, ah, I hate it. <laughs> It's ruining everything in the neighborhood. He was so crabby and mad about it. Oh, that's perfect. Yes. It's actually the perfect new. That's probably what inspired the plot of Ghostbusters 2. <laughs> yeah, probably. The long, simmering rage and disappointment that Ackroyd felt. Oh, I know. Oh, that's incredible. The only other time I can remember that level of resentment in New York towards a shoot was I Am Legend. Oh, uh, the God, Will Smith yes. thing where, like, Kate was there. We were there for the, the shoot of it, and I was... Oh, you mean beloved cinema masterpiece, I Am Legend? Well, you know, if you're going to destroy New York's traffic patterns uh, from, like, 5 a.m. to 10 a.m. every day for three months... Oh, my So Lord. you can catch two scenes. Oh, my Lord. You, you should really make it, you know, make them make that... You should make New Yorkers make that sacrifice for a tremendous piece of cinema. <sighs> and while I will argue that I Am Legend is a really good New York movie for the first 20 minutes, because it is incredible to consider that landscape without people. Sure, yeah. Uh, yeah, what a waste. Oh, my but, God. But there, was, there were daily updates uh, on radio about where you shouldn't go, oh. about which buildings would be in the eyeline of the camera, because they didn't want to have to CG people out of it. So there, apparently there were people in offices just giving the finger to the camera. <laughs> 6 a.m. Mom, turning my fucking light on. What are you going to do? Oh, is Will Smith going to come up here and tell me I should turn off my light? I will do that for Will Smith and no one else. It was just Take that, the Fresh Prince. The amazing hostility. That, yeah, you're not even from here. The, the, the amazing hostility that, that came out of that in the city. And that's in like 2000 and I want to guess... Six? Something seven? like that, yeah. yeah. It must have been 2007. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That, was when, that was the summer that Kate was there. Um, and it was just so... Like, people were just so primed to be mad at it. Oh, I know. I'm actually amazed at how much the new Marvel, the Netflix shows, shoot in New York. Oh, yeah. Like, it really, it shows. Uh, they they get a lot of great production value out of just shooting on rooftops yeah, and there with was a, the skyline in the background. Yeah, and there was an elaborate, I remember the sequence in Jessica Jones where they try to catch David Tennant was shot on, like, I, that's Union Square, I know those blocks. It's yeah, yeah, yeah. 14th Street and Broadway, and, and clearly during the day with people. Mm -hmm. um, 
that should be impossible, <laughs> I guess. Although those shows, for what for as good as they are, they are relatively small scale. So yeah. I'd imagine that whatever they're shutting down is not like we're not shutting down like five square blocks of Manhattan. Yeah, we're shutting down like an intersection and this corner. Yeah, yeah. Plus, actually, that that piece of Fourteenth Street where Broadway is is really just a laneway. Mm-hmm. You could probably divert traffic fairly easily if you really wanted to, like on a Sunday morning and, and fake it. Yeah, definitely. And if you're just up on rooftops, I mean, that's as yeah. long as you can crop out anyone watching you. Yeah, yeah. I'm sure anyone that's wants. actually pretty doable. Yeah, as opposed to Ghostbusters, which is. So much of it is street level yeah. and people interacting with doorways and mm-hmm. crossings and, and just the thick of humanity. Yeah. I don't think there's a scene in the subway in the first movie, is there? But there could have been for the no. level of complexity. They might as well have shot in the subway. Oh, my God, yeah. Although, don't they have, like, a few derelict subway stations that they use just for, like, the way we use Lower Bay Station? Yeah, probably. I mean, I know that the, the well, Cloverfield... Cloverfield was sort of cool. I was there in the summer that they were shooting Cloverfield. Really? Unwittingly walked through the set. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah, on Central Park uh, Central Park South, they come up into... It's the end of the subway sequence where they pop up after of the sixth line. They emerge near... Um, like basically near the, the, the plaza. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think the exit is in Bergdorf Goodman's or something. And they come out through a shopping center... And I was above it, and I just, I had no idea, because nobody knew what it was, obviously. Right. There was just this secret thing that was going sure. on. Sure. Uh, J.J. Abrams and his secrets. Yeah. And then that whole sequence in Central Park, when they end up in, in Central Park West in the Two Towers, uh, was shot in Los Angeles on sets, because they, huh. they couldn't do it in New York. Right. But the geography on the ground had to be real. Mm-hmm. So they were blocking off half a lane, and then at night they shut down the whole, oh, the whole wow. box. So I don't think even the horses and carriages could get through. Oh, my God. But... Like, that doesn't happen anymore because you have to be making a studio film. It has to, It's prohibitively expensive. Oh, yeah. So anybody making a small film like they came together or, or in the last five years, you're going to shoot that in Brooklyn or you're going to mm-hmm. shoot in Harlem. Um, I think John McGarry was telling me he shot scenes in his own apartment for the men just because it was cheaper than renting <laughs> studio space in New York. Wow. Yeah. It's, yeah. I mean, and it's how you survive now as a small-scale film, but Ghostbusters is a film that had, like, the full faith and credit of Columbia Pictures behind it. Also, I mean, they've talked a lot with this movie about how, by that time, Murray and Aykroyd were kind of just New York folk heroes from their Saturday Night Live days. Sure, yeah. So they bought a lot of goodwill for what they were doing with that. Plus... Well, the autograph scene at the end is basically just them signing autographs, right? They just oh, really? I think so. I oh, wanna, wow. I want to say that it went on longer... Because there are a few scenes where they're just sort of hanging out with people at the very end. Oh, that's cool. Cheering, and some of it is just caught footage on the fly of like, yeah, just keep it rolling. Because <laughs> film, like, it wasn't that expensive then. Yeah. Oh, God. Yeah. Oh, and apparently uh, they drove the car around a lot. <laughs> and uh, whenever people would be like, what are you guys doing? And they're like, we're making Ghostbusters. Uh, or they would say, like, we're the Ghostbusters or something like that. Just to try and get this weird urban legend going of what that meant. <laughs> So by the time the movie came out, a lot of people in New York were really on board with it uh, in, in a way that it hadn't even been promoted yet, uh, which amazing. I kind of love. Sort of pre-viral marketing. Yeah. Yeah. And that and working to include the city, uh, Goodwill as a character, weirdly, you know, like just that little montage where they're on Larry King and everything else. <laughs> uh, I love where, that. And, and Ackroyd was famously upset that they had to cut. Ramus told this story, and the dog is having a dream now. Uh, Hopefully a good dream. Yeah. Ramus told the story that the one thing that they that, that either Ackroyd or Reitman never forgave them for cutting because they wanted it in there was maybe no sorry I'm wrong Reitman tells the story mm-hmm. about how Ramus and Ackroyd never forgave him for cutting a digression where someone asks Stance if he knows there's a movie called The Ghostbusters 
And he does explain, like, he talks about it. He gives a little, like, a 30-second thing about, oh, yeah, it was this famous old movie. And, oh, wow. Yeah, and it was this first understanding that there might be copyright issues down the line. Well, apparently, when, even into production, they were still calling it Ghost Smashers. Which is such a terrible title. Terrible title. Uh, there are takes of everyone outside of Dana Barrett's apartment building, that whole crowd screaming, Ghost Smashers, Ghost <laughs> Smashers. But then apparently they filmed it with them saying Ghostbusters, and they famously called uh, the Columbia studio exec, who was in charge of it, right. and held up the phone of everyone like, chanting it, and they were like, looks like you're going to have to clear it, goodbye. <laughs> and then that was it. Uh, but yeah, that is another thing that, sorry to keep harping on this, but that drives me nuts about people who insist that there could never be another Ghostbusters. Right is that this is a concept that's been around and redone for decades. There are so many other versions of this. There is the Ghostbusters TV show, the kids' show from the 70s, right. which predates this. Had a gorilla. Had a gorilla. Because why wouldn't you? It was like two guys from F Troop. Yeah, like and, a Storch and somebody else. Yeah, and a guy in a gorilla costume, and they were called the Ghostbusters. And, and it was terrible. Oh, it was awful. It was I, brutally I, awful. I was there for that. I remember that. Oof. It was awful. I mean, I can't imagine what it would look like to a kid looking back. I would imagine even as a child back then, you were like, this is off. Um, but yeah, it's it's really cheesy. But at the same time, all the fundamentals are there. Dumb guy, like goofy guys who use technology to fight the supernatural. Right. Uh, and then you even go back further. Like there was the Bowery Brothers movie from the 40s, uh, which was Ghost... Chasers? Ghost Chaser? No, Spookbusters. Oh, right. Which I assure you is not racist. No, thankfully. Uh, yeah, I know, right? Real touch and go there. Uh, and then there was the Bob Hope one that was Ghost Breakers, which right. I watched a little while ago, which I'd never seen a Bob Hope old-timey movie before, which was very fun. Yeah, those are interesting in a completely different um, aesthetic experience. Like mm -hmm. You're just watching Bob Hope be Bob Hope, much as the same way you're watching Bill Murray be Bill Murray. Absolutely. But... There's more. There's far more of a framework around Murray than there is Hope. In this oh, movie. for sure. Yeah, and even that movie, it was like, he's like a radio DJ, or he's a radio announcer who uh, talks about the mob, and right. then the mob gets mad at him, and he thinks he's killed a mobster, so he follows this heiress to Cuba, where she's inherited a castle. This is like the first 45 minutes of the movie. <laughs> Uh, where he follows her to this castle, realizes he didn't actually kill the guy, and it never becomes a plot point again. Right. Uh, and then they go to this castle, which is purportedly haunted, and he declares himself a ghost breaker, like a strike breaker. Uh, and he's going to go in and clear out these ghosts. Right. And him and his huge African-American caricature sidekick uh, go through it, and they get scared, and they end up revealing the plot to scare her off. But then in the end, there are real ghosts... And, yeah, it was just... Yeah. But it was still. Stuffed. It was three or four movies stapled together. Oh, for sure. It was, you could tell that they were just making it as they went. And like you said, it was just an excuse for Bob Hope to be Bob Hope all the way through it. That's all anybody wanted. Yeah. It's, it's him and his goofy sidekick giving huge reaction shots, and that's the whole movie. But, uh, right, well, and every Abbott and Costello movie, like, that was the... Well, Abbott and Costello meet the... the meet Frankenstein, meet Frank the Mummy, meet yep. the Monsters, yeah. As was the style at the time, right? Yeah. Like, that's just how it was. Like, this whole idea of paranormal investigate Goofy paranormal investigators meet the supernatural, like, that's an old trope. Oh, yeah. That has been around a long time. It's just that Ghostbusters was the first one to land with such a cultural impact that at this point, people assume they invented that trope. Right. And 
Well, they perfected it. Well, they perfected really, it, it for really, sure. Yeah. It is. That's why there's the logo. That's why that like those are iconic things that became iconic because the package delivered. Like everything was what it needed to be, and it is. A, it's it's just delightful from start to finish. But yeah, the idea that you know there was a sequel and there was an animated series. This is not like the, yes, all the same characters were there, but it's not set in stone that it's inviolate. Yes, exactly. And you can have you know. If the Marvel Universe hadn't happened, then sure, a reboot with Robert Downey Jr., Mark Ruffalo. Yeah. Oh, I can do this. Uh, uh, yeah, you could do it with the, with the cast of a Marvel movie, mm-hmm. and it would be fun and different and still the same. I guarantee you that within our lifetimes, probably within the next couple decades, we will see the Marvel Universe reboot. Probably. They'll what start from like, scratch. How many Spider-Man films are there? Different ones. Oh my God, yes. three, right? They've just launched a third one. And I will say, I actually... I buy the argument that they needed to do it a third time just to get it right. Yeah. Uh, well, certainly what happens in Civil War is enough to convince me that, yeah, okay, you got me. I yeah. Mean, whatever it is, this is maybe not how it should have been all along, but how it needs to be now. I will also say, as much as I do have fondness for those Raimi movies, I do feel like a lot of people remember them with rose-tinted glasses. Oh, sure. There's stuff in those movies that are corny as heck. Yeah. Uh, but Spider-Man was corny. Well, it gets al- He's allowed to be corny? He is, except he's not. In the movie, it's always jokes happening at his expense, hmm. and he's rarely the the comedic driver of that's it. That's true. Only in the third one, and that doesn't work. Oh my goodness, no! But it's, that's what Andrew Garfield got right. Like what those yes. movies get right is how his, how much of an annoying oh yeah Spider Man is allowed to be. Of course, but then they also slop on three different plots of him having a secret past and yeah. stuff that just no that doesn't serve the movie, and no one really cares about, it, and it's all across purposes. That yeah. second movie is. There's good stuff in there, but it's a hot mess. Yeah, let's spend 30 minutes on backstory that doesn't matter. Holy smokes, yes. Yeah, And won't pay off. Won't pay off, ever. You're, you're never going to care about this yeah. stuff. Yeah, say what you will. The, you know, Melissa McCarthy's not going to have some sort of secret subway base. Oh, maybe she will, actually, <laughs> and I'd be fine with that know. in the new Ghostbusters. But what we will get, uh, and I, I avoid trailers and marketing as much as I possibly can, but I was trapped in a theater with the Ghostbusters trailer, the, first, the teaser, the first one. Sure. And I am... I'm excited about it because, like every Paul Feig film, it's a terrible marketing package. That is true. No one has ever successfully managed to sell a Paul Feig film. I don't know if it's that... Like, Spies trailer was a mess. Yeah. I don't know if it's that the studios don't know what to do, or if it's just that his comedy needs to breathe. Mm. And I want to say it's that. It's very... I've read reports of people who are at some cinema convention like a month ago, who saw some extended scenes from the movie, oh, and they were like... Yeah, yeah, I think so. And they are like, they play a lot better. Yeah. Oh, uh, I'm sure they do. His stuff is all about timing and reaction shots and, mm-hmm. and like, yeah, letting it breathe. And the other thing that makes me really excited is that Kate McKinnon has no dialogue, <laughs> but every shot of her is hysterical. I know. She's pulling these bizarre faces and giggles and big open mouth grins. And, like, I want that. I want that in a Ghostbusters movie. I want that sort of joy. Yeah. Instead of terror. Yes. So this should be the best job in the world. I also can't get over people who are like, they made this new one a comedy. (laughs) I'm like... I, I've, I've honestly argued with people online because that's how I procrastinate from writing. Me too. But yeah, I, I've seen people claim they're making the new Ghostbusters with women a comedy. It's supposed to be a horror movie. And I'm that's like, right. what planet do you live on? Oh, no. I mean, everyone remembers the original Ghostbusters is about the existential dread that comes with the discovery of the paranormal. For sure. Yeah, that's all they spend their time on. And there's a handful of jokes. It's got two scares and a blowjob joke. Come on. I know. And I get that, like, when I was five years old, that movie scared me. Sure. But because I was five. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, no, 
And also, bear in mind, I don't necessarily think the new one will be good. It could not be good. Mm. I just can't get behind the irrational hate of it. Yeah, I refuse to. Um, there are very few things that I will condemn just on instinct, mm-hmm. on reflex. And generally when that happens, it's because, you know, to use my standard line, Transformers 5 is probably going to be just as good as Transformers 1, 2, 3, and 4. Well, there you go. There, and I've seen them all, and I've suffered through them, and I... Yeah, I'm going to do the next one because I'm an idiot. But well, you also get paid for your job. time. Yeah, it's what I do. It's I'm paid to suffer. Mm-hmm. So, and apparently my editor thinks it's fun to send me these. <laughs> he did like there was one earlier this year. It's like, oh, you should take that one. It'll yeah. be fun to read. Yeah, and we, yeah, you know, like you can tell sometimes when a dog is coming. You can feel it for sure. But the idea Off that Batman versus Superman. Well, cough. yeah, but again, we had Man of Steel, right? The example had already been set. Yes. Uh, the creative team reunites. Do they have to? <laughs> But with this, it's that these are people that I love mm-hmm. doing things that could be really good mm-hmm. or really bad, but I, like, absolutely they get the benefit of the doubt, and it doesn't have anything to do with gender. It's just, this is a new take on an old thing. That's what we're supposed to want. I also love how people constantly say, well, Melissa McCarthy's not funny, so... Yeah. And I'm like, you've noticed that her movies are some of the highest-grossing comedies of the last five years, right? Yeah. It's just that you don't think you're laughing at them, but you probably paid to see them either that or there must be some return on investment you're mistaking your opinion for an objective fact on the internet on the internet i know right but particularly with this i've just seen so many people like everyone knows melissa mccarthy and christian wig aren't funny and i'm like no a lot of people think they're tremendously funny and say what you will about saturday night live it is one of the highest rated comedies on television yeah and leslie jones and kate mckinnon are crushing it on that show right now yeah i i there is nothing, there is no piece of this movie that I am not prepared to like because I know I like the things that are in it. I yeah. like the package. And and it's Ghostbusters. It's exactly. the first Ghostbusters movie since 1989. I'm going to hope that it works. Yes, exactly. You pull for it so, and you know, like, and what, uh, yeah. <laughs> I know, it's so maddening. It's incoherent objections that make me incoherent in response. But yeah, I mean, the worst thing that could happen is that maybe they make another Ghostbusters and it has guys in it. You should still want this to succeed to keep the brand going. Absolutely. If you love the brand that much, right? Like, you should root for this. And Lord Almighty, the people who say, why didn't they make a sequel? Yeah. Have you... Have you you seen an Ivan Reitman comedy in 15 years? Have Have you you listened to Dan Aykroyd? Yeah, his pitches have not gotten any better or different for the next one. He just... And I, you know, God bless him, he created this, and I will always love him for it. Oh my goodness, yes. But I think we can be realistic that this isn't necessarily the best way to steer the franchise. It's, again, with Star Trek, with Star Wars... George Lucas saying, eh, Force Awakens was okay. Yeah, I'd expect that from George Lucas. He's demonstrated that he doesn't know what Star Wars needs. Absolutely. And maybe, yeah, just let the people who made the funny thing you like more recently run with it is not the worst way to strategize. Or let the people who made the funny thing that you don't like run with it and Mm -hmm. accept that you were never going to get the thing that was in your head. Right. And, And that someone making a new thing even if you've decided that you like it, has no bearing on the old thing. This phrase, I know it's such a cliche to be upset with someone saying, this is ruining my childhood, but nothing ever gets ruined. Nothing gets ruined retroactively. If anything, the idea of them making a third sequel to the movie, where Murray barely wants to be in it, they have to justify why Ramus is dead, um, and Winston and Ray are the through lines. Right. 
Uh, and or we meet their kids. Or we meet which their was kids a number of times, and is never a good idea. Yeah, I remember for a long time it was going to be Michael Sarah playing Oscar from Ghostbusters <laughs> Two. <laughs> I uh, mean, I'll watch it, but oh no, for sure, I'll give any of this a yeah. chance. But at the same time, I don't need a lot of. Isn't it funny that we're all too old to do this jokes? Right, yeah. That, in a weird way, ruins this more for me than a reboot. Right. Yeah, I don't want to see old Ghostbusters. Yeah. I mean, if... And, and they've, they've since walked back the tease in the trailer about 30 years ago, Scientists Save New York, so weird idea. it's unconnected, which is great, because they should be starting from scratch, because Absolutely. then you get to watch them figure it out. Yes. Uh, but... I also don't think I want to see Grandpa Venkman or anything like that just sort of wander in. There's no point. Like, let let something else pass the baton, Mm -hmm. but don't do it on screen. Just let it happen. Yes, absolutely. I believe in this. So, which, uh, suck it, man babies. So, yeah, so we buried that one. And now that we've settled that forever. Yeah, forever, yes. um, uh, I get to ask the closer, which is, you know, like, what of Ghostbusters, and it sounds like a lot, have you absorbed personally into your DNA what's become part of your creative philosophy? Too much. Um, (laughs) Well, everything has to have a ghost in it. Everything has to have, I don't know, buddy. (laughs) I have pushed that at Degrassi so many times. Um, no, I, I mean, obviously ever since I was a kid, I'm obsessed with monsters and supernatural and stuff like that. And given my brothers, I would write not but stories about that. Uh, I think that was a lot of why I was so primed to love Buffy the Vampire Slayer the way I did when it came out. Sure. Um, again, I just, I, even supernatural, which I think is a better show than people give it credit for, if maybe not one for the ages, is a show that's just, it's the blue collar versus the supernatural. And I will, I will always buy a ticket for that. Um, but in terms of what I make, I just, I, I love underdog stories. I love the idea of writing everyone at the top of their intelligence, mm-hmm. which I really honestly think the first Ghostbusters is even Peck, the, the antagonist of the movie right. is written as sharp and, and interesting and is like verbally sparring with Bill Murray, uh, which I think is a lot more engaging to watch than just a heavy. Yeah. That's something we didn't even touch on, the idea that the villain in the film is from the EPA, which in 1984 would have actually been a hero in any other movie. I know, right? And his, you're right, his objections are all pretty valid. Oh my god, he's so right. <laughs> they have an unlicensed nuclear accelerator. Uh, they have, uh, they have all of the yeah. four of them, and they're firing them off in the middle of a densely populated area. <laughs> None of that makes sense. It's true. Uh, it just, I also love one of those famous Dan Aykroyd lists when she's like, you can't come in here without a warrant or a writ or something. And he's like, cease and desist all operation of unlicensed waste handlers, like properties, chattels. Right. Like, one of those things you know Dan Aykroyd just listed off the top of his head. Yeah, he didn't need to research that. Yeah. He just knows it. But yeah, you're totally right. He's absolutely right in every sense of the... F- yeah. But um, I, I think that's a... Except for the ghosts, yes. I think that's a fun inversion of that. But yeah, I just... I love the concept of just... Um, I love when characters are funny mm-hmm. and not just making jokes for the audience, but I love when the characters are making jokes for themselves, Right. which I think Murray does so beautifully. They all do it in the movie. They're making each other laugh. Yeah. They, they, you get the sense that they really do enjoy each other's company, which is sort yeah, of great. Both the actors and the characters. Like I get why these guys spend time with each other, even though they don't have a ton in common. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and the other thing about that movie that I really admire is I love... I love writing probably too much. Okay. Like, I, I love to sit down. I've done a lot of improv in my life. Um, 
And I wouldn't have done that if it wasn't for seeing this movie and learning about where these guys came from and then moving to Toronto to start doing classes at Second City and work for them a little bit and okay. all this kind of stuff. Like, it absolutely was one of the things that got me started on the path that I have ended up on, but for better or worse. <laughs> um, but uh, I love knowing all the angles ahead of time, kind of. Right. Uh, I love sitting there and really crafting a thing and writing it and working with people and being collaborative. Uh, and this movie was, as we discussed earlier, so worked on the fly. Yeah. <laughs> like, they just, they're like, we have a date that we have to deliver a thing. Go. <laughs> uh, we don't have time to second guess stuff. We don't have time to let the studio meddle a lot. We just kind of have to make it. And it's, I always try to remind myself that sometimes when you just let things happen and let yourself be surprised, you'll get, you get the things you don't expect. Right. And that that doesn't have to be bad. Sometimes it's terrible. Sometimes it's self-indulgent. Uh, some people make whole movie comedies where they don't know how to cut improv together. Yes, we've seen those. Oh my god, did you see Year One? Yeah, which is Ramus. Yes. Amazingly. I remember at the time feeling like that was going to be a really great test balloon for what a Ghostbusters 3 would be. Because there was a lot of talk at the time that maybe Ramus would direct it. Right, and when Jack Black was on and off with it too. I mean, he, he, he was, yeah. About constantly. And it was the two guys who were exec producers on The Office. Uh, it was like Lee Eisenberg and Gene Stupnitsky. I might have transposed their names. Okay. But they were working on a Ghostbusters 3 script. Oh. Yeah, and they wrote the script for year one. So I was like, oh, this movie will probably give an indication of what a Ghostbusters 3 will look like. Had a great cast, like David Cross, Jack Black. Yeah, Michael Sarah. Michael Sarah, uh, and a few other people in cameos that I'm not remembering. And oh, it was, yeah, no, it's wall-to-wall. Yeah, it was brutal. It was unwatchable. Yeah, there are things about it that I wanted to... I mean, I was pulling for it, and I just don't think it, it comes together. It doesn't. You know, like, from any scene to the next. And there's a lot of improv that you can tell is in the movie that doesn't cut well together. Like, right. scenes that just stop, as opposed to ending, and don't have a button, and don't flow. And it just kind of made me realize, like, oh, no, maybe this thing that I desperately want isn't going to work. Maybe we can kind of see that coming, but... Yeah, I don't know. I just, I, uh... I guess that that's it. I, I like reminding myself that sometimes when you find stuff as you go, it can be the best stuff. Yeah. Uh, that I don't often let myself do uh, unless I make a point of it. It's good though. I mean, yeah, it, it's. I want to be open as a as an audience member the same way. I want, I don't want to. I don't want to go into Ghostbusters the remake, the sequel, the reboot, thinking, well, ladies. What's the point? Oh, I just, goodness, yes. Just to, just to kick that can one more time. I Yeah, I want it to be what it wants to be, and I hope I enjoy it. Oh, absolutely. And I think that, yeah, I don't know. I think that those are four people with a real comedic voice, each individually, that are of this era. This movie's going to feel, the Newman movie's going to feel a lot different, but Ghostbusters felt a lot different from the Bob Hope movies. That's true. And uh, different from almost anything at the time, too, in 1984. Oh, absolutely. And it's also a movie that I don't think has ever been really that successfully emulated. People have kind of stolen bits of the DNA from it, but I don't think anyone's ever quite nailed whatever the tone of that movie was. Right. Uh, which I admire. Yeah, I'm trying to think as you say that, and it's that's true. There's no, like, there's a sort of a chaotic element mm -hmm. that comes up here and there. But that, even that is, the movie is is Reitman riffing on the Blues Brothers or something else where you threw a bunch of stuff at the screen because you're building to chaos. But because of the spine of the Ghostbusters screenplay, 
it isn't chaotic. It's just right. bursting with things. It never feels overstuffed. It feels like it's just creating more ideas and then bubbling over into the Stay Puft Marshmallow Man. Absolutely. Which, God love him. You know? <laughs> I kind of hope that doesn't come back. I don't want that to be... Nor do I. Let him face new things. I also just love what a batshit crazy concept... A god is coming from another dimension to destroy our universe. We have to choose the form that it's going to take. Yes, we get to pick. We get to pick, and what accidentally gets picked is a giant brand mascot. Like like if it was the Michelin Man or Mickey Mouse. Yeah, or It is kind of an amazing product placement moment. Yeah. I suppose. Because there are Stave Buck Marshalls earlier in the film just to set it up on Dana's counter. For sure. Uh, and... You don't think twice about it, but it's in your brain. It's in your sub. I will say, I think that's a little too buried for because I, I, I had to see that movie a lot of times before I noticed that detail. Well, There's also a the, billboard for it behind but you the firehouse. You would have seen it in pan and scan, right? You would have seen the TV version. You're very correct. Out things like that because it was the the 70 millimeter gorgeous version Panavision print. It's, they're right next to the eggs. You just don't see them in video. Yeah. And this brings me to the you know all, all pan and scan must be destroyed. But yeah, scope like. This is a beautifully shot, messy movie. It's it uses the frame like that, that that laser disc mm-hmm. on your lap is the first widescreen release of the film, and it was the first time like it, it was the joke that that um, Hudson and, and Ramis said like they were finally back in the movie. <laughs> um, I mean, the, even the the cover, the front cover of the Criterion edition is simply all four characters in a frame. Oh my God, that's right. Because in the pan and scan, it would have just been the two of them, yeah. wouldn't it? Just to quietly say no, no this is the way you're supposed to see it. And that's not even the whole frame. I had a VHS of it when I was a kid. And when I was a teenager was the first time I noticed what pan and scan was and that I hated it. Yeah. Because the pan and scan on this movie was brutal. It was a lot of like the actual scan. Yeah. Really obvious camera movement because it was 1984 and they didn't care. Yeah. It wasn't until years later that they got more sophisticated about it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, Oh no. Nope. Now anybody who watches it is going to watch it on Blu-ray or Netflix or DVD and you'll see it the way it was meant to be seen, mm. and it's like it is forty percent funnier. It oh yeah, is. absolutely. And I don't know. I've never seen Ivan Reitman make a movie that looks this good again. Yeah, uh, he's a like he's a good director. I just I've never seen him come even close to what this movie is. And I honestly think a lot of that comes from him just being a guy who is sensible enough to get out of a lot of people's way. Mm. He he realized that. On this movie, he was less the auteur and more the traffic cop. Yeah. Traffic cop is very reductionist. But in as much as, yeah, making sure everybody is moving in the same direction and keeping them safe from each other. Yeah, I think that's a pretty good way to put it. Yeah, like he was the collaborator. Yeah. And yeah, it's it, the movie is so much better for it. Yeah. And even Murray just has such a light touch. Like he showed up on set the day they started filming and was like, what's this thing? Ghostbusters? Great. Let's go. <laughs> Uh, and they put they put him in one of the suits, and they they were running down the street, and that was the first thing they shot for like the montage. Oh yeah, and uh, yeah, R- Murray is just in such a zone that he is able to carry whole scenes by himself while not having the fanatical devotion to the concept that Aykroyd does or the ownership of it that Ramis does. Yeah, no, it's it's one of those things where everything came together in exactly the right way. And created something that will probably never be repeated, but I hope they find a new way to do it in this new film. Absolutely. Fingers crossed. Fingers crossed, yes. 
My thanks to Ian McIntyre, whose name you should look out for in the credits when Degrassi Next Class returns for its second season, July 19th on the Family Channel and July 22nd on Netflix. You can find him on Twitter at Mr. Ian McIntyre, M-R-I-A-N-M-A-C-I-N-T-Y-R-E. You can find Ghostbusters on DVD and Blu-ray from Sony Pictures Home Entertainment, and for rental and purchase on iTunes, Google Play, and pretty much every legitimate streaming service, because it's Ghostbusters. The sequel's out there, too. And, of course, the new movie will be in theaters July 15th. Try not to be a dick about it, okay? As always, you can find me on Twitter, at Norm Wilner, and elsewhere on the internet at nowtoronto.com. You can also find this podcast on Twitter at semcast, S-E-M-cast, and on the web at someoneelsesmovie.com. If you want to leave a review on iTunes, that would be very kind of you. This week's call sign is Mass Hysteria. Thanks for listening. I'm afraid you're just too darn loud.